Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. We'll finish off chapter 1 this morning looking at verses 11 through 24. Now, just a brief recap of what we talked about in our opening chapter. Paul opened the letter to the Galatians declaring his utter dependence upon God, our utter dependence upon God. It is God who saves us. It is God who calls us. And no one can become worthy for either salvation or their calling, for the work is exclusively that of the Lord's. It is God who wills to do of his good pleasure. Now, our opening verses gave us some insight in that Paul and his apostleship was being called into question, which he replied to the accusation that is, again, implied, listen, I'm not an apostle because I was appointed by another person. No council voted on my apostleship. He said, Jesus Christ and God the Father himself selected me before I was born to be an apostle. Now, verse 10 revealed that he was accused also of being a chameleon. In other words, that he would say one thing to one group, and if a different group wanted to hear something different, he would say something else to them, to which Paul answered, and again, I'm paraphrasing, you cannot, say cannot. cannot. You cannot be a people pleaser, a man pleaser, and a slave or servant of God. It is impossible. Jesus said the same thing in Luke chapter 16. You, no man can serve two masters, for he will either love one and hate the other, or vice versa. You cannot be a lover of the world or a man pleaser and a servant of God. Now, we also noted that Paul forsook his normal format of offering a word of exhortation, encouragement, or even a prayer to the recipient church. But instead, because the topic was so crucial, so vitally important, he skipped over that portion of his normal practice and cut directly to the heart of the matter, which was false teachers are leading people astray, and some of you are turning away from him who called you into the grace of Christ. Now, that particular phrase is important because Paul equated to following a false gospel to turning from him who calls us, which is God. So when you follow a false gospel, Paul said, there actually isn't another so when you follow a false gospel, you are turning away from God. And he went as far to say that you're in danger of being anathema or accursed. Now, remember Revelation 2, 2, we mentioned last week. The Lord said to the church at Ephesus, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them what? found them to be liars. So is it possible for someone to claim to be an apostle and actually be a liar? Yeah. Well, according to Jesus, it is. Now, we made this point last week that some have gotten so confused within the church today, and I believe it's from the absence of teaching sound doctrine, that some have gotten so confused and so far off course that they are condemning Christians for doing what Jesus commended. He commended them for saying, hey, wait a minute, you don't meet the criteria for being an apostle, and therefore your claim is an error and you are actually lying. So, listen, sometimes we got to call a heretic a heretic. Amen? Amen. Amen? But we always allow our speech to be seasoned with salt 
We're not to be all salt. We're to be grace. And sometimes you have to call things what they are. Now, of course, it's not pleasant, but it is biblical. It's not pleasant, but it is biblical. Now, Paul's going to continue the defense of his apostleship for the balance of this chapter and on into chapter 2. And from his efforts to defend his calling in God and by God, we're going to find our course of action for the morning. Now, Paul makes his case for his apostleship by offering himself as, and here's our title this morning, living proof. Paul offers himself as a living proof to the call of God on his own life. Now, hopefully such a title should draw our minds to a couple of verses, the first being familiar. We quoted it last week in Romans 12, 2. We quoted 1 and 2, but for our purposes this morning, verse 2 is appropriate, which tells us, do not be conformed to this world. Is that not a directive? Do not be conformed to this world. That's not a negotiable. Don't be conformed to the world. But be, conversely, transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's where repentance begins, the change of mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and what's the next word? Is God's will perfect? Is his plan perfect? Are all his directive perfect? So should we do what he says? I'm thinking, yeah. Now, 1 Peter 3.15 also tells us this and gives us a word of instruction. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to who? Everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, Paul says living in nonconformity to the world allows us to prove God's good, perfect, or good, acceptable, and perfect will. And Peter says, in essence, we have to be always ready to do this very thing with the attitude of meekness, which is power under constraint, and fear, fear being implied, the fear of the Lord. Now, Paul's defense of his apostleship will give us some practical application as to how we ought to live in such a time as this. Things are a mess right now. They're just crazy and bizarre right now. So many wild and ridiculous things are going on in our world and some frightening things as well. And in a world of a thousand belief systems and fables and myths that are labeled as Christianity in these last days, we need to be able to offer as proof that the Word of God is true. And I submit to you this morning that the proof the world is looking for is found in you and me and how we live out our lives. Amen? Amen. So let's start with verses 11 and 12. So I'd ask you to stand and read with me, please. From Galatians chapter 1, we'll begin with 11 and 12. Read along, please. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we are grateful for your word this morning. And we thank you that you have told us through the psalmist in 138.2 that you have even esteemed your word above all your name, for it is your word that establishes the greatness of your name, the authority of your name, the power of your name. So, Lord, I pray this morning that we would look to your word with that same attitude of reverence and awe and respect. And God, speak to our hearts today and equip us for being living proof in these last days in a world that is quickly perishing and fading away. 
We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Paul makes his opening defense statement here, and then he backs it up with the balance of the chapter, offering himself as the living proof of his own calling and election as an apostle. He says in regards to the implied accusations that we looked at last week in both verses 1 and verse 10, that he is and was a bondservant of Christ. Now, remember, I mentioned that word is doulos. There is no Greek word that can be translated as bondservant, even though bondservants were a reality of that day. It's the word for slave, and it establishes a master property relationship. Now, in our day, we know that that's a huge and grave injustice. One human should never own another. Amen? Amen? But God is not human. God is God. And when you have a master-slave relationship and the master is God, it's a whole different lens that we need to look through and understand it. And Paul was saying, I am God's property. He is my master. He is the one who directs the course of my life. And he establishes himself as one who is called by God to be his servant. Now, that message he said that he was preaching is not a parroting of things he heard from someone else, but rather he had direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself. Now in John 14, 25 to 26, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you. This is on the eve of his execution. And uh, he's speaking to his disciples, uh, the original 12. I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside, he then qualifies as the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you what? All. all things. And bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Now, John 15, 15, Jesus went on to say, same night, same setting, same audience. No longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you what? Friends, for all the things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. This is how the apostles learned what they were to teach, at least the original group. Now, we've all heard it said, we've all probably said it, that Christianity is not a religion. It's a what? It's a relationship. And listen, this morning, isn't that what Paul is saying here? That I didn't learn this through the practice of a religion? I learned it through my personal relationship with God, through my personal relationship and divine revelation with Jesus himself. And did he not establish that his relationship was as such that God would reveal his will and word to him directly? You know, it's rather interesting. There is a uh, very, very well-known pastor uh, in Southern California who I heard say something that was just shocking Shockingly wonderful. Is there such a thing as that? He said something that I, I was just stunned, first of all, of the source, and secondly, what he said. He said a woman came up to him after church one time. This is a massive church, tens of thousands of people. And some, a woman came up to him after church and said, I have a word from the Lord for you. And he said, no, you don't. She said, excuse me? Yes, I do. He said, no, you don't. You don't have a word for the Lord for me. And she says, well, how do you know it's not from the Lord? He said, because I know him too. He talks directly to me. He doesn't need you to tell me what he wants me to know. He talks directly to me. Somebody say amen to that. I appreciated that comment. And we need to be very careful about such things because there are such things as words of knowledge. Amen? 
Bible talks about it. So sometimes someone, God will use a messenger, much like Nathan was used to bring David back into the right direction. Now, here's where I think we need to pause and draw a conclusion. Listen, we don't need to just tell each other that Christianity is not a religion but a relationship. We need to tell that to the world. We have a relationship with the true and living God because that's part of our testimony as living proof. And therefore, in light of what Paul does in defense of his apostleship, we as defenders of the faith, ready to give a defense, an apologetic, for everyone who asks us a reason for the hope that is in us, here's the first piece of practical application or tool, if you will, we need to employ. Listen this morning. Tell others what you have learned from God, not just that you know Him. Tell others what you have learned from God, not just that you know Him. Lots of people say they know God, right? I saw something floating around the other day. I thought it was uh, rather comical, though true, that somebody often today will say, well, I am spiritual. And the person said, so are demons. <laughs> true, right? And listen, lots of people can say, I know God. And you don't know necessarily what their definition of God is. Therefore, when we begin to explain what we've learned from God via our own life and walk with Him, then it qualifies exactly who it is we're talking about. Not too long ago, maybe a couple, three months ago, Vice President Mike Pence said in passing, he hears from God. And of course, the Medianites and Nancy Pelosi all embrace this as such a wonderful thing. What did they accuse him of? They said, this guy's hearing voices. He said he heard from God. Do we need a vice president who hears voices and claims him to be God, the voice from God nonetheless? Now, here's what I want you to consider. We get what he said, right? I get it. I agree with it. We hear from God. God speaks to us as his children. He speaks to us through his word. He directs and orders our steps. What Pence said is true, but here's the problem. Not the problem with what he said, but a problem with the response. Listen, in 1 Corinthians 2.12, we're told, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. The natural man, the unregenerate man, a person who is not born again, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are what? Did they not think what uh, Vice President Pence said was foolish? Proving that they are natural people or unregenerate people. Nor can he know them. They can't even know them because they are spiritually discerned. You cannot have spiritual discernment until you have the Holy Spirit. So let's think about this. An opportunity arises for you or I to share our faith. And instead of saying the, uh, something that an unbeliever can't understand or will even think is foolish, let's use the pandemic as a springboard for a conversation example. Listen, what if we said this to someone we're encountering in these days? 2020 has been really hard. Hasn't it been? 2020 has been really hard. I know people who have lost family members to COVID-19. I know people who have lost their jobs. I know people who have lost their businesses. This has been a really, really hard time. But you know what? God has strengthened me through this. 
He has taught me more about trusting him through this. And I don't know what all is going to happen in our nation, but I do know that God is going to get me through this. I do know that God is going to be faithful to me in this. And what God taught me is that when the world is falling apart, I don't have to. Don't you think someone who is hopeless is going to attach to a statement like that? Tell people what you've learned from God. I have learned that God is faithful. I have learned that God will supply power and strength to get through the unwanted and unknown things of life. People today are crippled by fear. Many people today are living with absolutely no hope. And that's why we're seeing so much manifested violence and outrage in our country. We've lost the capability in many cases to dialogue together when we disagree or to agree to disagree agreeably has now completely been lost in this country. Now listen, if we say that God has got us through, some people are going to think you're nuts. But they're going to think you're nuts no matter what you say if you're a Christian, right? So you may as well tell them what you've learned from God and about God. And think about this. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have died. And the New Testament will often use the phrase fallen asleep. They looked at the death of the body as a temporary state because that's exactly what it is. Because the dead in Christ are going to rise. Amen? Amen. Lest you sorrow as others who have no what? Hope. Hope. Listen, Paul is saying the Christian life is so distinct from life without Christ, we can even face the loss of life differently than the world. Isn't that amazing? What a blessed thing we have. What an important thing we need to share. And this reminds us that we do face things differently and our relationship with God does have practical meaning, and it does have life application. He does teach us about his faithfulness through difficult life events and even tragedies. And when things that cause sorrow come our way, they don't have to remove our hope. Our hope remains intact. And listen, that's something that's exclusive to us because hope requires an object, and the Christian has hope in the unchanging, all-powerful, and almighty God. And listen, we have the answers. Listen this morning. We have the answers the world needs. Amen? Amen? We have the answers the world needs. But listen, those answers aren't just on paper. What the Bible says isn't meant to stay on the page. It's real. It's true. It's transformative. And people need to hear what we have learned from God and how he has changed us, which we'll see Paul's approach to be in a few moments. We have hope and joy and peace and confidence and assurance and comfort and strength, and these are all real things. The world lives without these things. They have to trust in fleeting things like money. Not sure what the delay was there, but... (laughs) like that old adage, some people are so poor, all they have is money. (laughs) Now, some people have to trust or place their hope in things like power or prominence or achievements. Our hope is placed exclusively in someone who's done everything for us to save us 
and deliver us and take us to be with him someday. Listen, all those things, power, prominence, and money can be lost in a moment. And anybody who is super wealthy will tell you they have won and lost fortunes multiple times over their lives. Listen, since I got saved, I've never lost my salvation. Not even for a moment. Now, circumstances can't change what we have. Those circumstances do change. Pandemics cannot take what we have, though they come and go. And we need to be living proof in these days and during these times where so many are living in fear and despair. And the hope we have right now is the greatest tool in our bag to open the door for preaching the gospel. Paul says here, Jesus himself made known to me the content and structure of the gospel, which means Paul knew him and was his friend. But it was what Jesus taught him, which is where he took his stand, and we need to do the same. Amen? Amen. Now, let's take a look at verses 13 through 17. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, Paul continues his defense of his apostleship, and he moves from his source of learning to his personal testimony. He mentions that he advanced to the position of Pharisee. That's what's implied by being more zealous for the traditions than many uh, of his fathers, that is, than many of his contemporaries. He alludes to the Damascus Road encounter and that he did not seek counsel from other men, including the original apostles in Jerusalem. Rather, he went to Arabia for three years, which we'll uh, find in verse 18. And Arabia at that point in time would span from the Arab Gulf states all the way to Syria and Damascus as we know them today. Now, as far as Paul's testimony goes, Acts 8.3 tells us, as for Saul... He made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Then later in 26, 10 to 11, Paul gives its testimony that he also did this in Jerusalem. And with many of the saints, he shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against him, in essence, making him complicit in killing Christians. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, deny Christ or die, in essence. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now, California is a mess. Right? California is a mess. But something struck me as I read our verses, as Paul gave his testimony in 13 to 17, and then we included Acts 8 and Acts 26. Now listen, buckle up this morning and listen all the way through to what I'm about to say. We need to be praying for Gavin Newsom, not just trying to recall him. Amen? We need to be praying for Gavin Newsom, not just trying to recall him. 
Now, in his current state, we need to get him out of this state as soon as possible because he's killing our state. Amen? He is killing our state. But listen, what we just read about the Apostle Paul tells us that no one is beyond the reach of God. And listen, if God can save Saul of Tarsus, he can save Gavin of Sacramento. Amen? And maybe, just maybe, God called Newsom to reveal his grace through him and let him know his son loves him and died to save him. So listen, we need to be praying for him. I mean, in earnest. And, and not praying, Lord, save that jerk Gavin Newsom. <laughs> Lord, save that poor perishing soul who is so misguided, he thinks the idiotic things he does are actually right. We need to be praying for him. He's being guided by the adversary. Listen, uh, all these things that have been kicked to the curb by the church today, we need to reincorporate. Listen, there's only two teams. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. And if you're not for him, then you are against him. You're working against him. You're working against his word. You're working against his church. And you're working against his people. Now, listen, you, you cannot say it's okay to celebrate the Lakers' victory with tens of thousands of people in the street, but the church can't meet. That's not okay. There's something wrong with that. And there is a plan behind it and a devil behind it too. Amen? So, yeah, we need to stand up. But we need to pray for this man's salvation. We need to pray for the leaders all over our country. But this is our state. This is where we live. I love California, don't you? There's just so many wonderful things about this state. I mean, I'm a native, so uh, this is my home. And I know many of you, uh, it's funny, I met, uh, I think I met more Californians in Texas than I did Texans when I was there <laughs> not too long ago. So, now, most scholars believe that what Paul did in Arabia for the three years that he was there was the Lord was undoing all that pharisaical thinking. You know that many of the rabbis thought at that time that the Gentiles were created for the express purpose of fueling the fires of hell. And that's how many of the Jews would think, and that had to be undone especially if you're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles, right? Now, Paul mentions being called from his mother's womb as a preacher to the Gentiles. Now, that reminds us, via his testimony, how far someone can get from God on their way to God's will and calling for their life. People can be way out there. Paul was, right? He was complicit in killing Christians. He was going to foreign countries and arresting them and prosecuting and persecuting them. And listen, a person can be an awful person, yet become a person forgiven by God. A person can be an arrogant person, yet become a person whom God humbles and uses after he saves them. Hey, we weren't going anywhere until I heard an amen for that. Now, I want you to think about this from Paul's letter to carnal Corinth. I love how Ray Stedman always figured or uh, referred to the books of Corinthians as first and second Californians because there's a <laughs> lot of parallels in the behavior of the Greek city of Corinth as there is with California. But he said this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Let me pause there and say, who wrote the Bible? God wrote the Bible. Human men held the pens 40 of them over a period of 1,500 years, but all Scripture was inspired or God-breathed by God Himself and is profitable for reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man and woman of God may be equipped and understand 
uh, the need to serve him according to his word. So if the Lord says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, that means the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Therefore, would not God, because of this statement, be obligated to define unrighteousness? Absolutely. And he does, at least in part. This is not an exhaustive uh, list here, but what Paul says is do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, those who have sex outside of God's boundaries, nor idolaters, those who put other things in front of God and worship them, nor adulterers, those who cheat on their spouses, nor homosexuals, means exactly what you think it means, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. I'm glad he didn't stop there. And such, what's the next word? Were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified, which in this context means to be set apart from your former self. In other words, you were transformed by the renewing of your mind that he wrote in Romans 12. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So we are a people, all people are sinners. Amen? Amen. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Matters not the manifestation of sin, whether you're a big sinner or a little sinner. Jesus died to save sinners. And Paul said of himself, of whom I am chief. Now, remember, nonconformity proves the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, we also need to remember that with this list of unrighteous behaviors that identify one, as not being saved, and it's, the, it's not that Christians can't do dumb things. Hello? It's not that Christians can't do dumb things, evil things, even things in the list we just read. But it is the defense of them that distinguishes one who is a believer and one who is not. And there are many today who are saying, you know what, it's not fair that God says homosexuality is not an acceptable sexual practice. If God said it, that settles it. Hello? That settles it. It doesn't matter if you believe it. If God said it, that settles it. And people argue with that today within the church. But God said this behavior can be repented of because he said, and such were some of you. Do we not need to align our thinking with the word of God? God is right all the time. We established that this week. God is smarter than us. Amen? So all that he says is right and true. Now, doesn't matter what our past is. As Paul gives a list of these behaviors as he even gave a list of his own treatment of Christians in the past. But he was called by God. The original intention of God was to separate him even from his womb to become the man that we read of today known as the Apostle Paul rather than Saul. Now, this brings us to the next component of reaching a lost and dying world as living proof. Now, listen this morning. This is kind of an observation, but it's got some instruction in it, too. Listen, people may argue the validity of Scripture, but they can't deny a changed life. People may argue the validity of Scripture, but they cannot deny a changed life. And I like what Paul said. He said, you know, some of you have heard about my past. Well, I'm here to tell you that in spite of my past, God had a plan for my life. And that's proven by my present calling and ministry. And remember Psalm 103, 8 through 12, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. 
He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. Nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. You know, I am glad that God did not say, as far as the north is from the south, he has removed our sins from us. Because that's a measurable distance if you use the measurement scale as the earth. Because once you start heading south, eventually you're going to go north. But if you start going east, you're always going to go east. East and west never meet. You're always going to be headed in the direction. God's smarter than us. He stuffed that in his book for our learning pleasure. Amen? Amen. Now, as to our point, do people argue the validity of Scripture? Absolutely. Happens all the time. People can say all day long, the Bible was written by man. You ever hear that one? Man held the pen, and that's where his responsibility ended. Some people say the scriptures have been corrupted. Heard that one? How do we know the Bible is true are some of the things that people say today. However, there is nothing that leads to the validation of scripture more than people who are living proof of God's word. People who are living according to God's word. Now think about this in Matthew 1, 22 to 23. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, Jesus speaking, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call, or Jesus being spoken of, I'm sorry, and they shall call his name what? Which means God with us. Matthew 2, 14 and 15, we're told when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, speaking of Joseph having been warned in a dream. Herod was going to try and kill Jesus. And there was and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea chapter 11, Matthew 2, 23. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a what? A Nazarene. That's from Isaiah chapter 11. Romans 8, 3 to 5. For what the law could not do, it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled where? Where? In us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the Spirit, have you ever thought about the fact that when you obey the Word of God and live in accordance with His will, you're fulfilling His Word? You ever thought about that? Maybe when we've got one of those decisions where somebody would say, well, this is one of those gray areas that we have a decision to make concerning life. Maybe we ought to throw that into the equation pot. Say, you know, am I going to verify and validate the Word of God by my actions in this moment in time? Paul said, I was an enemy of the church, and then the head of the church made me his friend. And what I once persecuted and prosecuted, not only am I now part of, I'm in leadership there. And that's the way God operates. And this is why, listen this morning, this is why these hyper-grace movements today are so dangerous. And they use phrases like, 
the behavior modification gospel. They say anybody that says that when you get saved, your life is going to change is adding works to the gospel message of being saved by grace. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus modifies the behavior of everyone he saves. I, for one, am thankful for that. Aren't you? I'm glad that he changes us. And listen, that allows us to be living proof and validates the written word of God. And listen, many of the things that Jesus did fulfilled scripture. We just read a partial list of some of them. Many of the things Jesus did fulfilled scripture. We are his. He is with us. His Holy Spirit is in us. And our very moniker, Christian, means Christ-like. So if Jesus' life was fulfilling the word of God, shouldn't ours too? Shouldn't we live in a manner that validates the scripture and proves the life change that comes through knowing Christ? And for those who are saying, don't worry about how you act after you're saved by grace, they are robbing Christians of being living proof and proving the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Listen, that's not works. That's God at work in you. And that's how he operates. Amen? Amen. Now, John Newton, who wrote what is arguably the most famous hymn of all time, Amazing Grace, Grace had the following epitaph written on his tombstone. And it says this. I think it's up on the screen. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Do you see behavior modification there? Yeah, I would say so. From running slave ships to preaching Christ and him crucified and uh, preaching against slavery, uh, as many did, and rightfully so in that time. And listen, Newton was just like the rest of us, according to Colossians 1, 21 and 22. We were all alienated from God and were his enemies. But he became reconciled to God through Christ's physical body through death, and he was blessed with the power of the Spirit to write a hymn that most people in the world know at least some of the words to. I mean, instantly when the hymn is played, when Amazing Grace is played, the words, how sweet the sound, that saved a what? A wretch like me. He even had a movie made about his life. Listen, people can say what they want about the Bible because until they are born again, they don't have the capacity to understand it. The natural man cannot discern the things of God. Amen? Amen. But none of them can argue with, I once was lost, but now I'm found. T'was blind, but now I see. 18 to 24, we'll finish off our time this morning. Paul says, and after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you indeed before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But... They were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy and they glorified God in me. Now, again, Paul 
is defending his apostleship and his source of learning in that he was taught directly from Jesus, the same as the other apostles, just in a different time and through a different means, the means of direct revelation, just like John received the book of Revelation. Now, he stayed with Peter, he said, for 15 days. He saw nobody else except for James, the Lord's half-brother, uh, same mother, different father. And uh, in other words, he didn't spend months with Peter, the lead apostle. He didn't spend days with James, who was the Lord's half-brother and the head of the Jerusalem church and the head of the Jerusalem council. And then Paul says, I'm not lying, I'm not making this stuff up. Jesus taught this to me directly. He offers a little bit more about his itinerary, and then he mentions that he wasn't known by face to the churches of Judea, but his testimony had reached them. They had heard about what God had done in Paul, and now they glorified God in him. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, as the opening, uh, the, uh, the Beatitudes and the things that followed, as he gives uh, a, a manner of behaviors that ought to be appropriate in the life of the Christian through the Beatitudes. Then he says, in conclusion, his summary statement in Matthew 5, 16 of the Beatitudes is, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and who? Your Father in heaven. Now, Peter says this. Now, listen close to this. It's in contrast, but it has the same outcome. 1 Peter 4, 14 and 15 if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. On their part he is blasphemed, meaning to vilify, but on your part he is glorified. glorified. Now, the churches of Judea saw, through what they heard, the good work of God in Paul after his transformation that was so radical and literally turned him from the church's primary human enemy to the primary apostle to the Gentiles. Now, this leads us to our concluding point and a final reminder this morning, which is this. Listen this morning. Our primary objective in life is to glorify God. Our primary objective in life is to glorify God. How did Jesus say we glorify God? Let others see your what? Good works, and then they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, who would you think would be behind the stifling of good works if God received glory for them? Isn't that going to be the enemy? Isn't he the one who's going to say, hey, just grace saves you, just sit and wait for him to come get you or die and be taken to heaven? Is not our primary objective in life to bring God glory according to Jesus, as they see our light, which is actually from him, shining through us via good works. Now, we're not going to just sit here and glow, <laughs> right? He's using a metaphor. Let them see the goodness of God at work in you and through you, and therefore God will receive glory for it, just as we see what happened with Paul. They'd never seen him. They didn't know anything about what he looked like, but they had heard that he was different than he used to be, and they glorified God in what they heard, and now they had the opportunity to see. Now, 
we have to recognize that glorifying God doesn't happen exclusively through words. Certainly we have to glorify Him in praise and thanksgiving. We ought to be verbal. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's not that we are silent preachers, so to speak. There's an oxymoron. How do you be a silent preacher when preacher means a proclaimer, one who speaks things out or announces them like a herald? But we also have to couple that with the things we are to do as Christians. Listen, we are in a prime opportunity right now, (coughs) excuse me, with what's going on in our world. People are hurting. You know what you do for hurting people? There, I heard the answer out there. What do you do for hurting people? You help them, right? So listen, when we help someone, they're going to be more prone to listen to what we have to say, aren't they? I mean, it's kind of tough. You know, uh, we all have these people, they hold up their cardboard signs or people come and up to your car window and and want money or something. You know, I I like to just, when when the Lord lays it on my heart, Terry and I always pray, God, do you want us to give money to this person? Are they going to go drinking? Are they going to buy crack with it? Are they going to? I don't want to use my money for that. Amen? Amen. So if the Lord says, hey, give this person some money so they can eat or whatever, you know, that's always given. The, the effort is always accompanied by some kind of blessing or reminder. You know what? I know life stinks for you right now. I know you don't want to be on the streets. And you may not even be able to receive this, but I got to tell you, God loves you. And you know what? Go get something to eat or whatever, whatever you need, but make sure. And a lot of times I'll, I'll say something to someone who's a little suspicious, if you know what I mean. No booze. Promise? Promise? I promise. And I have gone as far to tell people in the past, listen, I'm a Christian. And I'm giving you this money because God told me to give you this money. And if you go drink the money God told me to give you, you're not going to feel good tomorrow, and I hope you puke. <laughs> so promise, no booze? No booze. So listen, the effort opens the door for the words, Amen. right? The effort, the work opens the door for the words. So if all you have is words of something that other people are going to think is foolish, and we know the word of God is living and powerful, yeah. Right? It's living and powerful because we have the Holy Spirit, which opens our heart and mind to it. And therefore, we look at it and say, yes, yes, yes. And the unbeliever looks at it and says, you're nuts. Why would you think this? Why would you believe this crazy book that's been written by humans and and, uh, corrupted so many times you can't even count how many times it's been corrupted? But boy, I'll tell you, when somebody's hurting and you offer a hand or an encouragement or do something that helps them out, they're going to be a lot more apt to listen to what you have to say. Now, Ephesians 2.8 tells us, and for some reason, everybody stops at verse 8. But there's more to this. There's 9 and 10. How's that for a revelation? There's 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. Somebody say amen. amen. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast and say, I became worthy to be saved. For we are his workmanship. Created. Are we new creations in Christ? What are we created for? We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we can be saved? No, because we are saved. He saves us and puts us to work. 
And then it says, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Now, as far as our personal sanctification, remember what Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue peace with all people. Romans says, as much as depends on you, be at peace with all men. Sometimes it's not possible, right? Pursue peace with all people and holiness. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Holiness has to be pursued. And that tells us that it's not something that is strictly positional or something that happens to you at the moment of regeneration, though that is true as well. When we are born again, all of our sins are washed away and we are made righteous in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Is there work to do after that? If there wasn't, Paul wouldn't have wrote to the Philippians, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until when? The day of Jesus Christ. God's always at work on us. He's always changing us. We have to strive and battle our flesh to do what is right before God so God can receive glory through us. Now, listen. We bring God glory through good works and serving Him, right? Now, can I say something convicting this morning? Just say yes. I saw on another pastor's social media page, I won't give you his name, but you can be mad at him just by proxy. Listen to what he said. He said, let the church be what you miss other things for. Did you get that? Let the church, or let church, be what you miss other things for. Is it important we be together? Shouldn't everything else become second to church? I mean, we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, even the more so as we see the day approaching. We need to be together because here's why this is an important statement. Did not Jesus say we should put his kingdom first? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. Isn't church where the people of God meet to be equipped for the work of ministry and learn more about the word and become and learn how to be living proof? then making church what you miss other things for is a good place to start in reprioritizing our lives. Is anybody still here? Now, let me ask you this. We're wrapping up now. Have any of us done enough for God in light of all he's done for us? Not even close. We're not even remotely close, are we? In responding in the things we do for him, not just to bring him glory, but to give him thanks for all that he has done for us. And therefore, we can all agree that we should do more. Uh, Did you hear the all thing? We can all agree that we should do more. Amen. And not look at statements like this as legalism, but rather look at them as exhortation. We need to serve God more. I mean, come on, right? Right, we, we've not even come remotely close to equaling what he's done for us and gave it to us as a free gift. We need to serve God more. That's true for everybody. I don't care who you are. And listen this morning. I'm not trying to build attendance at church. If you're watching online or whatever, go to any solid Bible teaching church anywhere and serve the Lord there. That's the important thing. But the important thing is this. When we do that, we'll have made a good start of glorifying God as our primary objective, because any time we obey God, He receives glory. Amen. 
He said, go to church. So go to church unless nothing. There's, there's nothing. Go to church. That's where our thinking needs to change, unless this or that. No, of course, there's reasons, you know, when we're sick, especially now, stay home. We'll be, we'll be blessed by your decision. If you're not feeling well, stay home, right? But if you're doing okay, go to church. We need to be in church. Jesus is coming soon. So listen, let's be ready. Let's be busy serving and doing what honors him because he'll receive glory for everything that we do. And I don't know about you, but I want to have a head full of crowns to cast at his feet when I stand before him at the behemoth feet of Christ someday. Don't you? I want to have all kinds of ways to say, God, I did what you said. You received glory through it. All the credit is yours for what you did, even through me. Let's bless his name as we serve him in these last days. Amen. Amen. Father, we are grateful for your word. Thank you that you have enlisted us as living proof to go to the world as examples of what you can do to someone who's messed up or broken or hurt or uh, disenchanted or confused or whatever. God, we thank you. We have so many examples in Scripture of you taking someone who is a million miles from you and not just saving them but using them and bringing glory to your name through them. And Lord, that's our heart's desire. We want to be through that transformed and renovated thinking, those who can prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So Lord, bring us to that place and help us to start with just simple acts of obedience just being a part of your body and serving, Lord, where you've called us to do so, that you can receive glory through us, remembering everything we do that's in accordance with your word, you receive glory for. So we thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for Paul uh, defending his own calling by his own testimony. And Lord, they can argue about whether your word is the word of God or not, but they cannot deny what you've done in us. So help us, Lord, to validate your word by our actions and our, our words as well. And we pray this, Lord, with thankful hearts with all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said together, Amen. Amen.